ready? So come on, baby. Welcome to Popcorn Martini Soup, a movie podcast. I'm Jess. And I'm Anna. We're your hosts, here to hang out. And we always end up talking about movies. Usually over a couple of martinis. Or a warm bowl of soup. And it has been a minute. Welcome back. We're yeah. very excited to be back in your feed. <laughs> I'm, I'm just like this dancing is... <laughs> and wiggling. <laughs> this is an auditory medium, Anna. You need to speak. You can't just That's dance. That's <laughs> true. I, look, I feel like I'm just like brand new to this all over again. Um... <laughs> But no, I'm 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 so excited to be back because we have so much to talk about. Um, it's it's been a while. It's been a while, and we have done a lot of movie going while we've been off. So I feel like we have so much to cover. You and I just spent ten days. Well, I mean, I spent ten days. Mm-hmm. You didn't quite go as hard as I did. Um, at TIFF, the Toronto International Film Festival. Yeah, if you follow us on social, which you hopefully do, um, we covered a lot of all the films. I mean, most films, Jess was the one that was there for. (laughs) And I went for maybe like not even half of it, but um, yeah, it was such a good time. Um, So much of, I mean, last year was, a few of it was like in person and stuff too, but this year really felt like we're back. Like the pandemic like is over. It's just, you know, I mean, not really, but it just really felt like the original sort of festival energy. So that was it super did. fun. Yeah, it was a little weird. Um, in some of my screenings, there were like maybe half of the audience wearing masks, a whole mm. bunch of people not wearing masks. And um, I was always kind of looking around like, what is what is the protocol for this one? What are we doing? Right. And I just aired on the side of masks because I was like, I'm going to be in like 18 movie theaters this week. You guys do not want my germs all over you. Yeah. But yeah, even with that kind of occasional confusion or awkwardness, it really did feel like the festival is back and it's so much like what it used to be, which is so exciting because I think after a couple of years of um lackluster maybe not you know i mean just because we couldn't do it in person um this was really special i think one of the best things about tiff is um i was just listening to an episode of the big picture where adam Neiman was on talking about his tiff experience um and he was saying that like tiff unlike so many of the other big festivals takes place in a city where people live every day like you don't have a whole bunch of people living in Cannes or living in venice is what he was saying whereas like toronto is a huge metropolitan center and this festival is so much as much as it is like for industry and it's for people who make movies and write about movies professionally it's also so much for people like us and and like more casual movie fans to just like go and be part of the excitement and see the red carpets and and join in the spectacle and i think that that brings a really exciting energy to it too yeah and there's so many different ways of taking part in the film festival like if you're really Mm. just for you know seeing like really big celebrities you can do that if you're not like about that crowd and just want to discover like new um and up and coming like directors and actors you can see that as well like it's just I don't know. There's just so many ways of, of enjoying it. And like, even if you're not a movie person, if you're just passing by this, like the festival street, which came back this year, like it's so much fun and the energy is there. Um, it's like all just such a good time. Yeah. Shout out to Tiff. Tiff really delivered. I, I had a great time. So I cannot. Okay. Like, can you tell? I'm just like, I cannot wait to hear all about the movies <laughs> that you've seen. We'll obviously not be able to like go, go through all of it, but um, I feel like we should just 
Was there anything else? Because I really want to get into this conversation. <laughs> Let's get into it. We obviously can go on about like all the different movies that you've watched. You obviously watch a lot. I didn't watch as much, um, but we tried to pick our top two favorites. Um, not sure how you did that because there's a lot of really, really good films that you went to see that I'm super jealous about. Um, and but yeah, I I really want to just start with your films because I just I really want to hear about. Um, I think After Sun, which is one of your picks. Yeah. Um... So I did go to see After Sun, which is um, the feature-length debut from Scottish director Charlotte Wells, um, and it stars our favorite white boy of the month, Paul Meskel. He was actually in two movies at the festival this year. Um, I did see both. The other one is Carmen, which is a like dance-forward adaptation of the book slash opera um, directed by the guy who choreographed Black Swan. Um, it was a little bit unexpected, but... Uh, still an interesting watch. But yes, I wanted to talk about After Sun. It is one of those movies that is no plot, just vibes, which mm -hmm, I know does mm -hmm. not work for everybody because the plot right. is essentially just like Paul plays a young father um, and his he and his 11 year old daughter, Sophie, go on vacation to a Turkish a Turkish resort. The whole movie is kind of just them on vacation with a few flashes to other points in time um, and it's largely captured through um, like a home video camcorder and it's really a meditation on this father-daughter relationship. It kind of feels slow moving at times but not in a bad way. It, it really just sits with these characters and sits with their relationship. I think people's reaction to it will vary a little bit depending on whatever like what your own relationship with your father is like because it's mm. very much that is the core of this movie and that is the thing that so much of the emotion in the movie hinges on but my god it's good there, there comes a point I think where I at least started to feel like okay you know I really liked the beginning I really liked the way it set this up and then kind of where are we going with this and then um friend of the pod Joey also watched this movie and he and I were talking about it after we both saw it it was a different moment for each of us sort of the last third of the movie that just like hit hit you like a gut punch and the fact mm. that for each of us, it happened, but in a different moment, I thought was really right. reflective of the different ways that this relationship will touch people. Well, I know that like you've talked about your dad a couple of times in past episodes. <laughs> Do you feel like that sort of played into your draw into into this film? I, I mean, that's kind of what it sounds like. But like for you specifically, like, I mean, I, I think so. I think that I really love a father daughter story because I am yeah. close with my dad. Um, like it's I don't see it as a reflection of my relationship with my dad. I think it's like a very specific kind of relationship that's being depicted that some people will resonate with but it was elements of it it was pieces of um the the love and the care and you know those those small moments in a, in a parent child relationship that mm -hmm. you don't really think about until you see reflected back to you yeah it's i should watch do you think i'll like this i think if you go in prepared for the fact that it does not move quickly like if you settle in mm -hmm. and you're ready for it to be like kind of a slow burn kind of um 
a very quiet movie. Yeah, I think so. I don't know. I don't know if you will have the same reaction to it that I did or the same reaction that Joey did because we came to it from very specific places, but I do think you'll enjoy it. Where does it? Who? This is an A24 film. So. Oh yeah, it is an A24. I yes. didn't mean to scream. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, as A24 enthusiasts, that is exciting for us. I completely forgot that this was an A24 movie. Mm-hmm. It okay. feels like an interesting choice for them. On the one hand, it's very different from a lot of what they put out. And yet on yeah. the other hand, I think it fits in with like where they've been going as a studio and, and the canon that they're building for themselves. So we'll see what the reception is like. But I think it's I think it's really beautiful. So that's my first pick. It's not necessarily my like number one movie I saw, but it's mm-hmm. definitely one of the top. It's definitely one I want to talk about. And I know that for one of your top favorite movies that you saw, you also picked a pretty emotional choice. <laughs> please, yeah. please tell me about Rice Boy Sleeps. Um, it's directed by Anthony Shim and he's a South Korean Canadian filmmaker. But yeah, like the movies about a South Korean mom who immigrated to Canada to start a new life with her son and it's set in the 90s. Um, and the film just like truly dives right into the mother's kind of survival through the trauma of immigrating to Canada. So the mom is played by this incredible actress, Choi Sung-yoon, and I feel like she was like tasked to carry so many layers of complexity of being a mother. Like playing a mom is complex to begin with, but she's also a survivor of her husband's loss, which isn't a spoiler, it's in like the description. Um, Everything is a fight from day one for her and her son. And that like, that heaviness of her surviving just keeps chipping away at you, like bits by bits through the whole film. And I eventually broke down at the end of it. <laughs> so, which you I know about. I was the like, message you sent me afterwards. You were like, I am in tears, like sobbing coming out of Rice Boy Sleeps. <laughs> Yeah, I I thought that I would be crying the whole way through. And I was kind of surprised that I really wasn't. But it caught me off guard that it was almost like what you were kind of experienced through is experiencing through these characters, through this mom mm-hmm. and the son, where you're just kind of suppressing it the whole time. It's it's the it's the minor feelings not to tap into that but like for anyone who's read the book but it's it's truly the minor feelings that just like piles on piles on and piles on and then it just explodes at the end and I'm like oh I was like carrying all that with these characters is sort of how I felt Mm -hmm. um but anyway okay so the mom is incredible but seeing little Dong Hyun who's the son who's played by Dong Hyun Noel Huang was truly such a throwback for me and just I just want to preface by saying that like my experience was very different since I wasn't um, an immigrant yet at that age of like first grade but when I was in elementary school in Japan my mom used to take me to like I think it was like Albany New York so like not like New York City where there's like <laughs> diversity <laughs> right. but like everyone was white as far as I remember and we were like the only agents like my mom and I were the only agents and the film, the way it follows, so it follows little Dong Hyun and his first day at a Canadian school, bringing his mom's homemade kimbap for lunch. And the kids are obviously like freaking out about the, the look of it and like the smell mm. of it. And the way this little boy is so ashamed and decides to throw it away 
But then fast forward to when he, when he like comes home from that day, he's asked about how his lunch was by his mom, if he loved it, and he just quietly nods and he just asks for like sandwich for lunch for the next day. That that whole thing, like I'm explaining all this because I feel like it does like capture the entirety of like the of the film because first of all, it was so real to me, but also like he's in first grade and the level, the amount of shame that this little boy carries and the way he's forced to put himself aside and prioritize the way others see him and the way he protects his mom. Like he's conditioned to remove himself emotionally from such an early age. It, that was just like, I, I can only sort of, sort of going back to what you were saying, something that I only realize as an adult now, mm -hmm. seeing it on screen this way. And I'm like, I used to do this, but I can now acknowledge how, how much of like a weight that is to a to a little being like yeah and so anyway so it, that that was just like a lot and because he's like so conditioned to like suppress all this from this young age like he doesn't know how to manage his feelings and display his emotions in like a healthy way so um we see we we not only see like younger version of him but an older version of him as well we see him as a teenager and he doesn't like he displays all these kind of feelings through through anger and it's the cycle of like shame and then anger and shame and anger that it's like it's completely endless and teenage dong hyun like played by ethan huang is so so good as well just capturing the complexity and all these emotions but in a very quiet way um yeah it was just like it was a lot obviously <laughs> um <laughs> yeah like I think all that to say this film has obviously like a lot of really important and heavy obviously like topics that are woven into these two people's like story mm. but it's also actually like really heartwarming and I will say that like yeah I cried at the end but it wasn't because I was like devastated but it was because it was just like a moment of well feeling seen but also these two characters being seen and seeing mm -hmm. each other and just this mother and son like growing growing together in these conditions and so it was just like really really heartwarming and beautiful and that's why I was like bawling <laughs> feeling all of the emotions yeah wow I mean that sounds incredible and it also sounds like I mean so many of the stories that I've heard from the people around me who either immigrated here themselves or their parents immigrated here like that story about bringing something for lunch to school that other kids yeah. don't recognize and having that internal battle of this is the food that I love and that I'm used to and yet it's like countered with such shame um, for being othered because of it. That seems like such a universal experience for immigrants or children of immigrants. And what a great way to like bring all of those people in immediately to relate to him. And it sounds like we spend a lot of time with, with him sort of in his space do we spend time seeing the mother's perspective? Yeah, we do. Like we we get to see both equally. It's so it's so interesting the way they both protect each other, and yet mm -hmm. they're like by protecting each other, it's actually harming each other. Mm -hmm. um, and there's that like very sort of common yet complex relationship of mother and son or mother and daughter to like really a parent and their child of mm -hmm. them trying to do the right thing in their own way, but not knowing how to kind of either express that with to each other or they just they're just on a different pages and like yeah. that communication isn't there and yeah so that was that was really really well done from both perspectives like the mom and the son okay. it was beautiful 
sounds really special. All right. So enough from me. Let's move on. <laughs> that was that was one of my picks. Um, what's what's your next pick? So one of the other films that I saw that I absolutely loved um, that I know that you didn't get a chance to see because we'll talk about some of the ones that we both saw and really liked shortly is another one. I guess I'm gravitating towards like emotionally difficult <laughs> films. I don't know what that says about me. But another one that is you kind of have to be ready for it going in because it is it's got some trigger warnings attached. It's like a pretty difficult story. It's Women Talking by um, beloved Canadian Sarah Polly. Um, this has an incredibly stacked cast. There was talk, I think, among people in various film circles that we kind of wish that the Oscars would do like an ensemble cast award and that this mm-hmm. would be the cast to get it. Because, I mean, even just the names like Claire Foy, Rooney Mara, Jesse Buckley, Ben Wishaw is in it and is excellent. And then like another Canadian screen legend, Sheila McCarthy. Like there's just... There's so much talent on screen. You can tell that Sarah Polly is so invested in the way that she is telling this story, not just in like getting the story out there, but in the particular crafting of how it gets out there comes through so clearly. So, okay. Women Talking is based on a book by Miriam Taves. Um, and it's basically about this community of women who the book and the movie are fiction, but this is based on a real story of a true thing that happened where a community of women in the novel they're Mennonites in the movie it's not entirely clear because Sarah Polly wanted to keep it a little bit more vague so a community who are um, quite isolated and, and not really integrated into society the women get together because they have discovered that the men have been drugging and sexually assaulting them in the night and basically this whole story is the women sitting around and discussing what do they do next so it really is I mean the movie is called women talking and it literally is an entire movie of women talking it's such a well scripted and blocked movie in that um you can tell the moments that are meant to be like I'm making a very important point here that is speaking to what is happening but also speaking to something greater in our society and like the looks and the motions are so meaningful and um, I was lucky enough to see a screening where Sarah Polly was present and she was talking about the movie after the screening and and she was saying and I think this is a really helpful context for viewing the movie she was saying that she intended it to be like a fable so um she made a specific choice for like some voiceover narration um for the movie she made a very specific choice for the color palette which i think i've heard some talk already that people do not like the color palette i think that in the context of creating this as a fable and she also referenced the idea of like a faded postcard that the color palette works so well because if you had this like bright colorful like bold visual it it's not vibing with the way that she wrote the script to be like a little bit more removed a little bit more aged almost like we are kind of living in the past in this movie even though it is taking place in modern times it's set in 2010 and that's a very deliberate choice that she made and you can see in the way that she like played that through other pieces that it is deliberate and that she took this like fable postcard idea throughout the whole 
process of the movie. And I think it works incredibly well. I know that there are people out there who disagree with me, but I just thought it was really effective. And I think that it only helped to amplify the really phenomenal performances. I think, you know, I still think about um, there's a speech that Claire Foy makes in it that, you know, everybody, you'll, when you hear it, you'll know it as the like, this is like Claire Foy's moment. There are looks that Jesse Buckley gives that just like sear themselves into your brain. Like this is such a mm. such an impactful cast given like really interesting material to chew into. And I just want to say, because I know that this is like really heavy subject matter. I I don't think this is a spoiler because I don't think that this would like knowing this going in would change your experience of the movie for the negative. I want to say that like Sarah Polly made a deliberate choice to not depict any assault on screen in this movie. Mm. It's all either like in implied visuals or talked about. And I think that that was a really responsible and like respectful choice. I think there is a place for like violence and assault in media. And I, yeah. I don't think it's in this movie. And I really appreciated that choice she made. So I just want to say like, if that's something that is difficult for people to watch, you can know that going in that it is not depicted on screen. So... I'm glad you shared that because I was like, I'm like scared to watch this yeah. <laughs> based on sort of knowing the cast too and how amazing they are and just the intensity of the subject as well. Mm -hmm. And the way you described it, just it sounds like you just get completely, I don't know, engulfed by like the world of of Sarah Polly, I guess. But mm -hmm. like there's something, I don't know, now I'm like even more drawn because I think there's something really, I mean, I obviously haven't seen it, so I can't really say, but like it tells me that there's, you know, there's something to be said about the story and like that, like, I, I just love that choice. Like, yeah, I don't know. It's just more of an, even more of a draw to me. It puts more weight on the script and it puts more weight on the actual yeah. act, the, the act of these women sitting together having this discussion especially because you can tell from the like world that she's built around what's happening these women don't often get the chance to use their voices in this way they are often silenced and they are often ignored it i think it just makes the act of them talking that much more important does it come out anywhere anytime soon because it does this one does have distribution um and it is coming out i think the very beginning of december in north america i will be watching it immediately i feel like there is a lot of heaviness going on here and i don't know that that's going to change <laughs> yeah. with your next pick no <laughs> <laughs> Um, look, I mean, we, we, we've been in a pandemic and we just want to feel things. We just want heavy things to be shoved at us. <laughs> um, but yeah, this was also another very easy sort of like pick for like, all, like favorite pick for me. And um, I went with Nanny and it's directed by Nikiatu Jusu, who is a Sierra Leonean American filmmaker. And I mean... This, like, I think this was one of the first movies that I was immediately drawn to when I was looking through the festival slate. I was mm -hmm. like, yeah, Nanny's immediately, like, on my list. It's about a young Senegalese immigrant in New York who um, starts working as a nanny for an upper-class couple to um, save up and fly out her own son to live with her in New York. Like, as she's working in this job and she's sacrificing herself for the job it, and it's, like, demands... She's essentially like haunted by nightmares and hallucinations and it progressively gets worse through the film. Mm. And there is something that I immediately get drawn to when a woman's 
like pain and trauma and suffering is depicted, I guess, through like genre fiction. <laughs> I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but like the like the reason why I was most excited about this one was because I read that it's like the American dream yet again failing a new immigrant and the woman has violent hallucinations of mermaids I was like that's all that's all I need to hear I was immediately sold (laughs) it's so funny because I remember you talking about it and and basically saying that and being like I am in immediately right away and then I went and read about it and I was like okay as someone who a does not like horror films and b tried her hand at being a nanny and hated it I was like this movie is Mm. so not for me on so many (laughs) levels but it is exactly an Anna movie yeah right yeah (laughs) so I was so excited about this and oh my goodness it it delivered so Anna Diop who plays the lead role Aisha as the nanny I mean she carries the film like she grabs you and just hangs on to you the whole film she is incredible and you mentioned about like horror but I I think you can watch it because it's a lot more psychological thriller than than horror Mm. um there's a lot more a lot of like pain and like urgency of survival in the story but there's also like a lot of a lot of love actually both with like a significant other um, that Aisha meets, but most of all, like her maternal love comes through. So again, like a theme going on with like this mother and son situation, <laughs> I guess. But yeah, it's like it's it's not like a like a I don't I don't think like a true horror fan would maybe categorize this as horror. Like right. I I was fine watching it. So I mentioned Mermaid earlier, but more specifically. Like we find we find out through through the film that like their visions of mommy water, like a, a mother water, which is like a water spirit known from like Africa and African like diaspora in the US. Mm. And so like water and drowning is like and like gasping for air is like very much coincides to like Aisha's survival in the real world. Mm. And it's so well depicted. Like it's so beautiful. And that's part of the reason why I don't say that it's like true horror because there's like such like visual beauty to all of it too. And Mm. her just like gasping for air literally and emotionally. I definitely, I mean, based on the way I'm describing it, I'm sure you agree that like, I think this falls under the I'm a girl and I'm insane cinematic (laughs) cinematic universe. I was just thinking, I know that's like your favorite brand of film and it really seems like it falls into that. Yeah. And And, like, I do worry, though, because I'm, like, such a, I, like, claim that to be, like, my brand, (laughs) but, like, I have absolutely not seen enough movies to claim that, like, title at all. So, if anyone, (laughs) if anyone listening (laughs) has, like, suggestions on that kind of um, films that are not too, too horror that I can't watch it, um, I'd be so open to it. But all that to say, like, it, it is in that universe, but unlike, like, Midsommar or, like, Suspiria, or like perfect blue which are all Mm. part of that universe that I really love like this is like her environment failing her and therefore like she doesn't have a choice but to neglect her sense of self and like she doesn't have control over any of these things and she's just surviving and so that takes form into these hallucinations and it bites back 
Edder. I won't say more than this about this, Mm -hmm. but like, I'm not spoiling anything, but that's basically the essence of it. And anyway, it's just, it's, it's very, it is very much in like the Blumhouse family. If you're a horror fan, you'd know Blumhouse. Um, It's intense, but there's also like fun moments and it's just like super gorgeous and actually like lots of love and heart. And yeah, it's not just like scary, essentially. I loved it. I think this is this was it's really really I can't, I can't pick between Rice Boy and and this, but I think I really just from like the fun and like being on the edge and just also the the genre of it too, like mm. being specifically like my kind of movie. <laughs> um I think this was like my number one of the festival. Wow. Yeah. Highly recommend. And I think I think this is uh distro by Amazon Prime, or Prime Studios. So hopefully oh. it comes on on Prime. Yeah, uh, that's a good soon. sign that should be available. Oh, actually, before we finish this talking about Nanny, mm-hmm. this actually reminded me because you earlier we kind of ta- were talking about like food and you know with with Rice Boy sleeps. There was actually this specific moment. I mean, I mean this is this is about an immigrant immigrant story too. So obviously like food um, comes into play with with this with this film too basically when when she when she's a nanny and she's over at like the at the family's house um she cooks um her own like senegalese food Mm -hmm. um and she's eating it and like this child that she's watching is like interested in the food and like loves it um but there's this moment that i don't think this is spoiling much because it's not really the the what happens but like how it's how it happens is what is like interesting and just mm. funny um but the mom finds out about her daughter eating this and completely freaks out mm. and was like what are you feeding like complete and it's just like this is too spicy for her and oh I, I i'm not kidding i bursted out laughing in the movie theater <laughs> i like it was such a comedic moment to me so that's how it's like fun i don't like i don't know if it was as funny to other people it's just like i just find it so funny when people especially white people get like very (laughs) very intense in a very ignorant way about like Mm. spicy foods um this isn't just white people actually I shouldn't say that like my grand my grandma was like that about like certain sort of foods that aren't like good for kids because Mm. they're a little bit too spicy or whatever and that is so not the case but it was just hilarious how like food just came into play with a barrier between this woman and this family and yeah Mm -hmm. and that's such a clear division like that's something that is so easy for people to understand as a way of creating this like very deliberate space between the mother and Aisha in like with you know clear racial elements at play that is, I'm sure, entirely intentional on the part of the mother because that sounds like that's the kind of character she is. But like what an immediately uh, like recognizable way for people to understand how, like the, the line that she's drawing in that moment. Yeah. On that note, though, even though th- that was only kind of like there's a couple moments like that where there's very obvious kind of ignorance and just stupidity coming mm-hmm. from this upper class family. But that is never the focus which is what I really appreciated about this movie. This is about, um, this is about Aisha. Like this is not Mm. about talking about how dumb these people are. It's about her story, her survival, um, and the way she navigates her identity. And it it always comes back to her. And that's why this sort of like mermaid hallucination, it all comes back to who she is 
as a Senegalese woman, as someone who is in New York, as someone who's trying to get her her son over Mm -hmm. to live with him, like none of that, it's all noise, like the food stuff and all that is just background noise. And it's just very day to day. And I think that's part of the reason why I burst out laughing, because I was just kind of like, ha like another funny sort of like, whatever moment that's happening in the background in our day to day. So that's yeah, like it really they did not take away at all from this main character. So I, I really love that. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay, so that is a really heavy um, top two for each of us. Yeah. And I also we saw a couple of movies together that I think we both thought were pretty great. Um, I realize I just want to acknowledge that like the first two movies I talked about are both very white and I wanted to make sure that we highlighted these two as well because mm-hmm. um, these are like my other two if I were to put together like a top four these are the other two in my top four and I just I don't know like I I feel like maybe these ones won't get the same kind of attention that like mm-hmm. women talking and after sun are already getting um, and so I like want to encourage people off the bat to go see the two movies we're about to talk about um but we were lucky enough to get to see these together which i think was Mm -hmm. really nice so where do you want to start do you want to start with joyland sure yeah directed by uh saim sadiq which was um a really cool experience because he was there and the cast was there and this is a really complex movie i think there's a lot going on um it's basically the story of this man who lives in Pakistan the the film is Pakistani and the cast is Pakistani this man Haider like has a wife and he lives with his father and his brother and his brother's wife they all share this home together and Haider is really kind of still learning some things about himself he's sort of discovering that he's queer and he is really kind of he has spent a long time kind of being a house husband while his wife is the one who is working outside of the home and earning money and he gets a lot of shit for it for not having a job Mm -hmm. and for not sort of being the the traditional like patriarch breadwinner in the family and so he goes out to try to get a job and he meets this trans woman Biba who dances at the local like erotic club and he gets a job as a backup dancer for her and they start getting closer he really starts pulling away from his wife and from his family and what I thought was really interesting about this is the way that like this is Hyder's story but he is not really the hero of this story it's really showing like this man is kind of a mess and it's the women around him who are sort of stuck with the consequences of him being a mess um but it doesn't do it in a way that dismisses or invalidates those women like Biba really takes some of the brunt of it as this woman that he is like trying to figure himself out against and like the film never questions her identity as a trans woman but the film questions like him questioning his identity in relation to her Mm -hmm. and then also like with his wife Mumtaz like she really deals with you know he is cheating on her and he is like kind of abandoning her and she feels very isolated and and is suffering because of it but like we get so much of her perspective as well that it doesn't feel like we're viewing it through his lens and I really appreciated that perspective like it felt like the women were still speaking even though this is like his story does that make sense yeah absolutely yeah you captured it so well I could not have said it better (laughs) 
Um, you're you're right. Like the the main per like the main role that we follow is Hyder. Yes, but like it's all these women that are being like rolled into all this mess that he's going through and discoveries he's going through. But there's also like so much empathy to the way the story is told with all the women that are in, in, in the story and also, mm-hmm. also him too. Um, it's never, there, there's a lot of moments that are like embarrassing to, from like the character's perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so many kind of like new and uncomfortable awkward discoveries that some of these characters go through um caught off guard moments like there's so (laughs) many of that and yet you never I like I never really felt really shame or like uncomfortableness or awkwardness around it I mean I was there with them but I it wasn't so much to the point where I just felt a lot of like love around Mm. it in the way they told the the story um agreed that was just beautiful like I don't know how to describe that but like we saw like the whole cast and like the director being there and just you you felt so much of that too not just from the film but like I felt Mm -hmm. so like lucky that we got to be in that space where you know I think like a lot of the like community as well were there and kind Mm -hmm. of connecting with like the culture and the nuances that I probably didn't pick up on or maybe see as well. And it was just kind of like new things for me too, but it just felt really heartwarming and like a privilege to like be a part of that space and that like, yeah, the way they connected. A hundred percent. It really felt like so much of that room was filled with people who were connecting on that level and I think that the film really welcomes you in even if you don't necessarily have those touch points but yeah it was it felt really special to be in a room with so many people who like clearly got it down to its bones and I I want to say too I have been kind of watching because I mean I never want to speak to like the trans representation without context because you know my perspective only goes so far but I thought that they did a really great job and I thought that um like Alina Khan who plays Biba is fantastic and I just I want to point if you want to do like some further thinking and reading on the way that this movie handles um, a trans woman kind of being on the other end of a man figuring out his sexuality because that can be a really complicated mm. dynamic. I think they treated yeah. it very respectfully, but um, Drew Gregory, who um, has a podcast and writes for Autostraddle, uh, wrote a review both on Letterboxd and um, in a roundup she did for Autostraddle. She's got really great perspective on this. I really appreciated what she wrote about that that element of it in particular. So I would recommend reading yeah. what Drew has to say as well. Amazing. Yeah. And then the other one that we got to see together that I think really made and left an impression on us is Brother, directed by Clement Virgo and is actually a story that is very personal to Toronto. It's another uh, book adaptation. It's based on the book Brother by David Cheriandi. And it's set in the Toronto neighborhood of Scarborough, um, which is like out in the suburbs. This is another family film, truly at its heart. Um, yeah, set in the 90s too. And th- yes, set in the 90s. Uh, and also about immigrants. This this is a family of immigrants who moved to Scarborough and are really sort of struggling with like building the lives that they pictured for themselves amidst like like the really 
difficult life of there's a single mom raising two boys in a neighborhood that in the 90s was not always super friendly and super safe. I think especially so for two young black men. And they are so different. Um, And the film really gives them each such a distinct identity and the way that they come together as brothers and then are pushed so far away because they're such different people. It's such an interesting like push and pull with their relationships. Yeah, this is uh this is also a pretty emotional movie. Yeah, this is this was really heavy and I I think it it kind of again like <laughs> it was funny because I felt like I was going to I mean it was only just for me like Rice Boy Sleeps and and this one in terms of like Canadian set 90s set like Mm -hmm. immigrant story (laughs) um and of course it's gonna be heavy but um yeah this was this was really kind of it was hard to watch but also still it kind of goes back to like how much how much love there is and the way that it just um is doesn't come to kind of like fruition in the way that we all want it to for these for the for these characters and this family but it really is about these two boys these two brothers who are just looking out for each other in ways that do go completely off off page too they're not in sync but it comes from love and they learn it from their environment and the way that they show love and um and it's heartbreaking and it's also it's also from the mom as well and their Ugh. their mom is so full of love too and yet it's it's so hard to watch when when so much of that love is out of sync because of you know the environment and the system and the situation that is failing them and the fear and and fear yeah and and it's just they they don't there's it, it completely out of control out of their mm. out of their control in being able to just live and to love each other and as family, as brothers, as, you know, some of like the relationships that we see too with friendships and romantic relationships. Yeah, it was, it, this one was a, a lot like, um, yeah, when after, <laughs> after we saw it with, the, with um, our, our, our friend Dulcie as well, like, her and I went to get some ramen to heal um, <laughs> immediately because we were like, <laughs> It kind of felt like I was just completely drained of my energy and just, yeah, I needed to go and get some warm hot soup to fuel. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I thought, I mean, the the actors in this are phenomenal. And I think that's part of the reason that it was so emotionally draining is because I think like with Lamar Johnson, especially who plays Michael, one of the brothers, his face is so expressive and you see every emotion written on his face and you can't help but get pulled into that so that you are feeling all of those emotions. Yeah. Um, and I mean, that's true of Aaron Pierre, who plays the other brother, Francis. And I, I think also of Marcia Stephanie Blake, who plays the mother. They just have this this expressiveness that every emotion that all of them are feeling, which is like a, a wide range over the course of the movie you are just in it with them the whole time and that is a draining emotional roller coaster to be on but it's so satisfying at the same time yeah it was it was really special to see this get a standing ovation um at its premiere screening at tiff and like the emotion even in that moment 
on the face of the faces of the cast and and the director was uh, a pretty phenomenal moment. I don't think this one has a release date yet, but it is being distributed by Elevation Pictures, so that's a good sign for a release date to come. I'm I they they better put it in theaters. I hope they do. And I hope so too. Yeah. Okay, that is a lot of heaviness. I feel like we need to bring in some levity. We need to like talk about some fun because yes, please. Oof. <laughs> and I also like I had soup earlier, like before recording this as my dinner, and it was like very comforting. But I feel like it's starting to drain after all mm. this talk of like heavy movies. So yeah, let's get into fun stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I I actually did have some fun at the festival this year. I mean, I saw Glass Onion, which is the Knives Out sequel. And of course that was fun. Benoit Blanc is back and the man went through COVID and he suffered just like the rest of us did. Yeah. COVID era, Daniel Craig as Benoit Blanc is such a mood. Um, We were deliberately told at the screening, like, do not spoil this movie. Keep it all under wraps. So I'm not going to say too much, but I will say it was very fun. There are some really great standouts in the cast. If you want to talk about the cast with me after you've seen it, we can do that. This is really one that like, I think like the first one, there's such a satisfaction in the way the dominoes fall as the plot plays out that you really like don't want to know anything going in. So I would say like, if you liked the first one, don't even watch any more trailers. Don't pay attention to anything else that comes out. Go see it or pop it on Netflix when it comes out and be ready for like, like they're trying to do the same thing again, obviously like different plot, different stakes, but like they're kind of doing the same thing again and it still really works. Like, I don't know that I would say it's better than the first one, but I think that it does a really good job at pulling a lot of the things that we loved about the first one. Yeah, I can't wait to see this one. I feel like, yeah, I'm just going to have a really good time. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's not a five-star movie, but it's certainly a win in my books. Yeah. Um, so one of the best things that TIFF does is their Midnight Madness screenings. So these are um, a specific kind of movie. It's now curated by uh, Peter Kapowski. It's basically like the weird, the horror, the like most offbeat movies of the festival usually get selected for Midnight Madness. And basically the first screening at the festival of each of these movies takes place at midnight and you just get the most like fun ridiculous rowdy crowds all of the weird like tiff like ticks that happen throughout the festival usually start at midnight madness so like the audience will start something and then they will like take it out to their other screenings and it's just like the the energy you can't beat and i feel like i picked a great movie for midnight madness this year I went and saw a movie called The Blackening. Um, It's directed by Tim Story, and it's basically like a horror satire. It was so funny. And it's it's based on the premise, like, it's it's actually based on um, a short that came out a few years ago and went viral, and they turned it into a full-length movie. And that was based on the premise of, like, usually when you watch a horror movie the person of color in the cast is the first one to die. So this is like an all black cast. And if they're all black, 
who dies first like how does that work Mm -hmm. when you like flip the narrative of the traditional horror movie the cast is basically like full of comedians there's a really great uh scream homage in it and you can tell that tim story and the rest of the team behind this movie really know and really love their like horror movie history um but also for people who aren't super into horror movies like i'm not a big horror person and i there are a couple of jump scares and a couple of like gory moments but it's nothing too overwhelming and the comedy of it really really like balances the tone so well i would definitely recommend seeing this in a theater because i feel like that is the best way to have that like full crowd energy reaction and like that's the way to experience this movie speaking of midnight madness and like some of the weird things that people like bake in the midnight madness audiences and then take out to other screenings what would you say was the most fun (laughs) you had at the theater this year and was it the ridiculous audience antics yeah well i was confused when it first happened but basically like bulgari is one of i think like the you know the highest rank of sponsors for tiff and so when you're that then there's always a commercial that plays prior to the screening Um, And this year, Bulgari's commercial had Anne Hathaway and Zendaya in it. And with one of the screenings, like, people started clapping to not only the music, like, on beat, but also, like, cheering after the commercial (laughs) as if some incredible, like, performance just took place. Of course, Joey's the one that gave me insight into this, that it's the Midnight Madness crowd that... (laughs) that started this yep. and I'm like of course why did I of, of course that's the crowd that started this <laughs> bizarre trend so that definitely like thank you Midnight Madness crowd for doing that because it was hilarious the other the other thing that I think um this was a picture that was like posted on a TIFF Reddit um thread but there's a picture of someone saluting to um a TIFF volunteer clip, which is also played prior to, like with the Bulgari commercials and stuff. So there's always a slot that's dedicated for TIFF volunteers. And it was just very, (laughs) we'll we'll probably share it on our social so you can take a look and just laugh with us. But it was just, it's just ridiculous. Like, it's just so funny. You kind of feel like, obviously this is like a huge audience and like a huge community of people. And yet it kind of feels like you're part of like an inside joke. And it's just, it's just totally, what is going on? That, that truly was like peak of this, this year's festival for me. (laughs) You gotta love the small moments amidst all of the like rushing around and chaos. It's, it's the little things that really make Tiff feel like Tiff. Yeah. I had such a good time. (laughs) me too Um, i always love tiff so much i do i same and i i think i've shared in the past episodes too that like i used to be a publicist um slash promotion stuff like in the film industry and so Mm. i was always working during these festivals as a publicist and um that was really really cool but it was like also i envy just being the consumer side and Mm. this was actually my first time being able to just have fun and just enjoy it as an audience um obviously like being on the back end of things there's a lot of just like crazy fun stuff that happens that's very specific to that and the exclusivity and the moments that you get from it and the the adrenaline and all that but I don't know. I just, there was something about being just a a movie lover and an audience and just really taking it all in. It was like so much fun. So I I personally, I just really love that. Yeah. No stress, just fun. 
no work, just film. Yeah. It really is the best to experience from this side of all of the mess. Yeah. And so many, so many great films. Like, oh my God. I obviously we, we went to a lot of like gravitated towards a lot of like really heavy ones. But sometimes, you know, I think it's important to address too that like a lot of kind of newer and up and coming filmmakers that, I mean, TIFF is very much a platform and also mm-hmm. like Rice Boy. Uh, Rice Boy Sleeps um, was part of um, the program, the platform programming that, you know, u- utilizes TIFF as a platform to like raise uh, a lot of these new coming kind of like talent mm-hmm. and showcasing these talent. Um, and so TIFF is very much about that too. It's not just the blockbuster stuff for sure. You know, totally. being able to like see that and have exposure to that was so important and really special. And I really do feel that like some of the highlights that we've seen were, you know, people of color and a lot of immigrant sort of experiences, mm-hmm. queer experiences too. And yes, so much of those stories are about trauma and things that are really, really heavy. But I think what I've gotten out of like all this heaviness, though, is the amount of love that there is in from like, you know, the creative perspective, but also these stories. And yeah, I like cried and it was devastating for some of them. But also just it reminds me how special all these stories are. And we just have to keep like finding them and like telling people about them and just being really excited about all of them too you know so yeah yeah absolutely like really special storytelling that happens at a place like this because you get such a mix of you know the big blockbusters and and the well-known directors like steven spielberg was here this year all the way to yeah like first time second time directors who are really just launching their careers you get the really great homegrown canadian stuff and you get stuff from like all over the world the TIFF programmers are doing like an ever-increasing better job at programming like a really diverse range of films and showcasing film from so many different areas of the world and um, yeah I think we're really lucky that we get such great access to those things can I just because I'm just like bursting with things to say can I just give like a couple more shout outs the new film by Hirokazu Koreeda he directed uh, Shoplifters which came out in 2018 yeah. and was probably like my the, my favorite movie that came out that year. Really about found family. I loved that movie. And Broker like wasn't quite on the level of shoplifters for me, but it was still mm. he's like revisiting found family in this one. Um, it's his first time working with an all Korean cast and working um, in Korean. And obviously like Song Kang-ho leading the charge you kind of can't go wrong he's phenomenal and if you have any thoughts or interest in the work of Koreeda or the work of Song Kang-ho I would say like definitely try to see Broker I can't wait I can't um, wait to see that I, I really think, want it you know, it was really on my like list it. I know yeah it was on it was on my list but I was like you know what it's neon. It's going to be in theaters. <laughs> I'm putting it out there. Provided neon doesn't do what it did with Petite Maman and just like never release it. It took them oh, true. so long. So don't do that with Broker. Neon, we're watching you. Yeah, no. The other one I want to mention is Baby Ruby um, by first time director Bess Wool. This is like a tight 90 minute postpartum psychological thriller starring Kit Harrington and... Uh, from Portrait of a Lady on Fire, Noemi Merlin. It's a movie that like didn't 100% work for me, but it's a movie that knows exactly what it's trying to be and achieves it. And I think that that in itself is an impressive feat. 
So if you like that kind of like psychological thriller, if you're interested in stories about motherhood, if you're, I, I think that this really fits into the I'm a girl and I'm insane cinematic universe. Okay. So it's got a lot going for it. Yeah. And it's Noemi. So sign me and up. And it's Noemi. So can't say no. We also have something a little bit special this time. Um, you've heard of him before, but our friend Joey also attended TIFF this year and um, he managed to see a lot of stuff. So we asked him to uh, just send us a little update, some of the stuff that he saw and what he was most excited about coming out of the festival. So here's Joey. Hey, thanks so much for having me on this recap episode of TIFF 2022. Uh, some may recall uh, from season one of PMS podcast that there was mention of a friend uh, who is who is always on the lookout for queer historical foreign films for Jess. Well, it me. But yeah, uh, Anna and Jess thought it would be fun uh, if I gave my two cents about what I saw at this year's festival as uh, I was able to catch 26 films in total. And sure, I could talk at length uh, about my love for films like Women Talking, After Sun, The Menu, Broker, Triangle of Sadness, and even The Fablemans, but in the spirit of discovering new smaller films that I hope get a wider audience, uh, I want to take this opportunity to shout out two smaller films that I went into not knowing really not much about and uh, both of which won me over by the end of it. The first film I want to talk about needs no introduction other than the title of the film and that film is How to Blow Up a Pipeline directed by Daniel Goldhaber who many may know from 2018's horror thriller Cam. Pipeline is based off of a non-fiction novel of the same name and which I believe Neon has actually recently acquired North American distribution rights for which is very exciting uh, but uh, yeah the film follows a group of young environmental activists uh, who are gunning to do exactly as the film's namesake blow up a pipeline. It's a film that feels so immediate, so tense, so urgent, and the music by Gavin Brivik is so incredibly propulsive that I never felt like it let me go throughout its entire runtime. And I guess that may sound stressful to some, kind of like the stress-inducing tonal vibes of Uncut Gems, but Pipeline actually reminds me of Kelly Reichardt's Night Moves but with shades of Ocean's Eleven, but if you make it about eco-terrorism. But what I think this film does exceptionally well being an issue-driven film is that it brings you on the ride first and then it unravels the environmental discourse where you begin to question uh, whether the character's actions are morally justifiable and uh, it certainly doesn't offer any easy answers and spliced throughout the film are flashbacks that contextualize each character's motivations and the hardships that they face uh, to bring them to wanting to blow shit up and so uh, I guess all of which to say How to Blow Pipeline is uh, is a great fun and a timely film that I cannot recommend enough. I am curious though, uh, have uh, either of you seen or can recommend uh, any environmental uh, issue driven film? Ooh, okay. Um, I feel like we'll come back to that question in a minute, but first I want to say that I have heard so much about how to build a, how to blow up a pipeline, um, not just from Joey, but from other people who also attended the festival. Mm -hmm. And like everything I've heard has been phenomenal. I feel like this was not an expected hit coming out of TIFF, mm. but has just like totally emerged as a surprise front runner and I cannot wait to see it. Yeah. Did he say Ocean's Eleven? Like, yes. <laughs> I like this heist situation along with like what the movie's about. Like, it just sounds amazing. And how like propulsive it sounds. Mm -hmm. um, like, Uncut Gems was definitely anxiety inducing and I feel like this will be that in a different way and yeah I'm so excited yeah um okay so the question about 
like I can't I'm like really having trouble finding like thinking of a movie that's like environmental related yeah I know me too there's like kids animation that does it really well like Mm -hmm. um like a lot of Miyazaki obviously touches on yeah. environmental factors and the way that humans have like impacted the environment. And then there's like Wally and stuff, but it's hard to think of something that's not in that realm or in the kind of like really obvious sci-fi realm. Like, I don't know, like Day After Tomorrow or something is like such a silly, obvious right. choice. Something so specific like this and grounded in reality feel is very unique as well. Yeah. So yeah. Definitely. Definitely have to check this out. Yeah, okay. And I think Joey has a little bit more for us. So let's hear that. And continuing the theme about Earth and Earth-related issues, uh, the second film I want to talk about, mainly because I personally do not think documentaries receive as much love as I would like for them to receive, uh, it's a documentary film and I guess an investigative journalism piece called The Grab, which is directed by Gabriella Cowperthwaite, who you may or may not know uh, or recall from her other notable documentary, Blackfish, about the orcas at SeaWorld. In a nutshell, uh, the grab investigates the power and pull of wealthy countries to buy up resources like land and water for their own use back home. So one example they bring up early on, and uh, please forgive me if I am suddenly factually incorrect, (laughs) and hopefully you can follow. But imagine if Saudi Arabia, or not actually imagine, it did happen. Saudi Arabia purchases land in Arizona and the United States to use Arizonan land and water in excess to grow hay in order to ship back to Saudi Arabia to feed their dairy cows. All because it is cheaper to ship these resources back than try to sustainably develop these resources internally given their ecology. Now, this is just one example of one country trying to support the inflow of one resource. Now add all the wealthy countries in the world all have their own agenda to take care of and feed their population to the extent that some countries may also even hire mercenaries to carry out things at the local level like kicking people off their land so they can grow shit. And I just think that for a documentary with a lot on its mind, keeping the viewer engaged is pivotal for watchability. And what better way to make people care about a topic than presenting a film that feels so urgent and dreadful and is quickly paced. Essentially, you're watching The Grab, but you're actually watching a spy thriller in the way that information is unraveled. I just think this documentary is so inviting and tense, and much like How to Blow Up a Pipeline, I think stirring any sensibility of urgency and a call to action can only be a good thing as a takeaway for a viewer. And to that end, thank you so much for having me on board this episode of uh, your recap of TIFF 2022. Talk and cry about After Sun, Jess. You know where to find me. My, my socials are on Instagram at picturevomit and on Letterboxd at Film Vomit. Thank you again to Jess and Anna for having me on board and maybe you'll see more of me in the future. Joey, thanks for picking like two that I know with the amount of movies that you saw and picking ones that you wanted to highlight just like beyond the sort of like easy easy picks or easier mm. picks maybe and like pulling these really like cool ones. Really appreciate that. But anyways, yeah, documentary. I have mixed feelings about documentaries. Um, mm. I don't know how you feel about them, but... <laughs> yeah, they're definitely not my go-to. I have watched a few and Joey and I make a point actually of going to the um, Human Rights Watch 
documentary film fest every year here in Toronto. So I have definitely watched more documentaries in the last few years than ever really before. But there's still, yeah, I'm like, I'm very specific when it comes to the kind of documentaries that I enjoy and the like the way they're crafted. Maybe I should be expanding my horizons. I don't know. Do you feel like you should be watching more documentaries? Yeah, I there's something about with documentaries, obviously, it's presented as oftentimes an expose, oftentimes kind of revealing a deeper truth into sort of stories that are out there and an investigation or some sort. And Mm -hmm. sometimes I forget that these truths are obviously like presented to you in a curated, formatted way. Yeah. Regardless. It's a very specific narrative that they're still trying to push. Yes, exactly. So I think that's why I have I have trouble with some documentaries but I don't know I think I think I haven't seen enough to actually draw that conclusion so yeah Mm. no that's fair I can see that like thinking back on some of the ones that I've seen there are definitely some that take a very specific stance clearly like shape the narrative to support that stance versus like showing you a full picture and sort of letting you come to your own conclusions or make up your mind for yourself this could be a really interesting topic actually to maybe dive deeper into one day thanks for this idea Joey I feel like yeah you You really got the wheels turning for us. Yeah. But thank you for the recommendation. This was really great, Joey. And that, I think, wraps up our episode. Yes, next week, um, we're going to switch it up just a little bit. And we're going to do a bit of a deep dive into the filmography of an actor who has made an appearance here before has been the subject of many a thirst buzzer. So look forward to that. (laughs) I can't, I mean, what gets us excited other than movies? Thirsty content (laughs) that is related to movies. I don't know what I'm saying. Anyways, um, I'm very excited about that too. As always, we love to hear from you. So let us know, was there anything that we talked about today that like sparked your interest that maybe you hadn't heard about before? Was there anything that was showing at TIFF that you like have at the top of your list? What's your must-see coming out of the festival? Who else, aside from this mystery person, should we do a little film retrospective on? Who do you want to hear about? Who should yeah. we be thirsting after next? Let us know. <laughs> um, you can always send us an email or uh, a voice note at popcornmartinisoup at gmail.com. You can reach us on Instagram at popcornmartinisoup or on Twitter at popmartinisoup. All right. I think that's it. Bye. Bye. Bye.